Hello and welcome to another episode of The Grey NATO. It's a loose discussion of travel, diving, driving gear, and most certainly watches. This is episode 154, and we thank you for listening. I'm joined, as ever, by my intrepid co-host, Jason Heaton. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, it's a classic kind of midsummer, hot, sweaty, sitting here in shorts and t-shirt and bare feet, and it uh, feels good. I like it. Oh, yeah. Well... A few things go with summer, like a good Q and A. So, uh, <laughs> as it is, as is our our normal methodology for these, we're going to skip on the chit chat and the final notes and the rest, and just get to the questions. Yeah. So, uh, what do you say we start with one from uh, Samir about uh, your becoming a civilian story? Yeah, let's do it. Hey guys, thanks for the great podcast. Uh, my question is around an article that was written by Jason on his Substack called "Becoming a Civilian." I thought this was a brilliant piece and really speaks to the pervasive nature of marketing in today's watch world. Uh, I was just wondering if the two of you could opine a bit more on that subject. And in addition, if you have any suggestions on ways of finding more thoughtful, unfiltered perspectives, would love to hear how you go about doing so. Thanks again. Thanks for that uh, question, Samir, and uh, and appreciate your uh, reading my Substack. Um, For those who uh, aren't familiar with uh, what Samir is talking about, I had written an article on this uh, Substack newsletter that I write weekly um, called Becoming a Civilian. And just a a bit of an overview, I I kind of use that term. It's actually not my own phrase. I I got that from years ago. I think I was in a conversation with, with Ben Clymer, actually, and he was talking about how when he started getting into cars, uh, kind of vintage cars, he really enjoyed being able to step away from this sense of being an expert in a f- specific field, uh, in his case, watches, and and become kind of new at something again, you know, be a novice in in cars and learning about them and joining forums and chatting with, with people who were uh, more expert than him and, and just kind of starting from the bottom. And I have found the same with, with various things over the years. And it's it's always nice, you know. As you get older, you can you can continually kind of refresh and learn new things, and and kind of step away from the stuff that you're really ingrained in. And and in my case, it's been watches and dive watches and that sort of thing. But um, to to kind of pull back from that from time to time and switch gears has been really quite rewarding. I've I've found that personally with with my you know Land Rover obsession of the past uh, you know four or five years now. Um, you know, learning what goes wrong, how to fix them, different configurations of them, kind of the history. Uh, it's, it's just been, uh, it's just been refreshing. Same thing with uh, over the past year, you know, Gashani and I really got into gardening, uh, you know, being kind of homebound, uh, during COVID. And, and that was another thing that we uh, has been really rewarding to, to learn about and kind of become, become a civilian about and, and not, not focus on only the stuff that, um, you know, keeps my head down and, you know, hammering out, you know, words and talking about and writing about watches all the time. It's nice to kind of lift your head above the the trench you're in and, and look around a little bit. So that's, that's kind of where I'm at. I think James, you've, you've had similar experiences. I mean, I think with the Jeep or renovating the cottage and, and some stuff like that, right? Yeah, I, th- I think the big thing I would say, you know, in, in, in becoming a civilian, I think the idea here is maybe just don't deny your curiosity. Um, I, I think it's easy it's easy to kind of stay at the same restaurant or even the same dish at the same restaurant every time because you know what it is and, and it's, yeah. there's a comfort there. And, and hey, comfort is great. Absolutely. But especially when it comes to to hobbies and just general interests, uh, follow your curiosity. And, and sometimes that means an investment. You know, uh, for me, uh, sometimes the it, it could be 
you could be becoming a civilian within the same space that you might be an expert. So you might pivot away from dive watches and, and go to 40s chronographs or a dress watch or, you know, just try try something new, step out of that comfort zone. Yeah. And uh, and I think in many things, change is, is evidence in growth. And, and I think that the there's there's a lot of it's easier to to not change or to try not to change and not to follow your curiosity but you know read a book you'd never think you'd read before try a movie from a different genre you know check out a watch that maybe a few years ago you wouldn't have had any interest in but now you have kind of like a weird sort of unexplained interest in just try try some new stuff and grow and and I think that's kind of the the background behind becoming a civilian is not only just being able to enjoy learning a new thing but finding the new thing that you're going to enjoy. Yeah. And and I think you have to be a little bit thoughtful about it. Sometimes it's lucky. Right. You buy a car and it ends up being something you really like like a like the the defender or, or whatever and and other times you have to be more intentional about it. Yeah. And um and and I would say that if you're at the point where something you used to love feels like a chore even if it's work, even if there's a part of your job that you used to love and now it feels like a chore, try and find a new way to approach it mm-hmm. um, uh, to try and bring it back to where you started. For me, if, I, if I'm if i getting really tired of, of watches and reading press releases and downloading WeTransfers and you know formatting images for introducing posts and stuff like that, kind of the, the faster, less interesting side of this, I'll, I'll spend some time taking pictures of, of a watch or or I'll I'll make some efforts to make sure that I have some new stuff coming in to keep that kind of a, a refreshing sort of uh, thing rather than just I'm going to do the same thing I did yesterday but for a different green dial or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, and and uh, Samir, you mentioned um, that you were kind of looking for blogs or publications that kind of capture that same spirit of becoming a civilian. And I think for me, uh, it's a little bit tough to kind of identify a few, but. One that sticks out is the Restorian by a guy named Justin, who absolutely he, he kind of focuses on capturing the history of particularly tool watches, and he, he's had a chance to interview some you know old C Lab Rolex owners and you know the use of Aquastar and on some Navy projects and Antarctica expeditions and things like this, and uh, you you really get a sense of this enthusiasm, and it's that kind of enthusiasm that I kind of feel like I used to have. Um, and, and Justin's, you know, I think he's got a day job, but he, he does this on the side and he really goes at it with a passion. And I really, I really like that about him. I think, you know, James, you might also know of a lot of people that do this kind of thing on, on YouTube, for instance, or, or a blog or a podcast, right. That, that might not just even be about watches, but about, uh, you know, cars or overlanding or audio equipment or something. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of endless. I mean, if you're looking, if you're looking for watch stuff, I would definitely, I would definitely look on YouTube. Although I, I did this recently trying to kind of expand. I don't follow any watch stuff on YouTube currently. And I thought I would kind of dip into it. Yeah. And, um, and it all looks, all the thumbnails look identical to me. And this is probably because I'm, I'm an older guy now, <laughs> uh, in, in terms of the elder millennial, if you will. And you know, some of it's just lacking for me. I, I watch the, I like the ones where they're kind of taking a watch apart and cleaning it and putting it back together. There's some, some oh, yeah. kind of comfort in that for me. But uh, for the most part, I mean, if, if your goal is to find, you'd, you'd use the word unfiltered, which to me is always a shorthand for unprofessional. Mm-hmm. And, and not unprofessional in, in that it's bad, but typically just one that doesn't come from, this is what the person does for their living. Oh, yeah. Um, but rather, maybe it's more of a hobby, um, a vocation versus a profession. 
Um, and, and, uh, you know, for me, I, I, I don't, I don't really attach to unfiltered, especially within the space where I work. That's not really the, the zone I'm looking for. So I, I would definitely say, you know, somebody like, um, somebody like Justin and the Restorian, he does an amazing job and, uh, and then just spend time in, within the communities around content like that. And, and, and if you enjoy the TGN community, then spend time in the comments and you, the stuff will be shared. That's kind of natural. You know, it is that. Uh, the, the, there, there is that, uh, kind of fat always rises to the top. Like it, these things still make it through the algorithms and, and the Google and the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, it's just a, maybe a little bit slower and a little bit more niche than it ever was. And and I think that's a good thing. That's what keeps, um, that's what keeps people in, in a position where they can, they can have a, a very specific audience and, and speak in a very specific manner to those people. And that's where all of my favorite content, whether it's on watches or more commonly cars and comedy and stuff like that. It's this hyper focused thing, yeah. Um, that isn't always concerned with what's happening among the peers of the similar content, right. which is nice. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, solid question, Samir, and uh, thanks very much for sending it in. Next up, let's hit one from uh, Jeff about uh, uh, auction dream watches. Hi, Jason and James. Here's a question that is a bit outside the typical TGN scope, but I was hoping it would be fun and might invite some considerations and discussion. With the auction season for the first half of the year wrapping up, if you had unlimited funds for any single watch from the major auctions thus far this year, which would you choose to bid on and win? There are numerous options which you have previously discussed as dream or grail watches, ranging from mill subs to Patek World Timers to Royal Oak Perpetuals. My choice would be the Langa Datagraph Lumen from the Philips Geneva 13 sale in May. One of, if not the best, chronographs ever made with a modern, whimsical, sporty twist, almost evoking the Timex Iron Man vibe that we all love so much from our childhood. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts and selections. Take care. Hey, Jeff, that's a great question. And man, that uh, Datagraph Lumen, goodness sakes, what a cool thing that is. Uh, you know, Long is great when they're when they're very stoic and 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 in their kind of general vibe but when they do these things that kind of step out of that some of the richard longa stuff that's like a classically sporty or the longest stuff that's this kind of youthful sporty uh just really really great stuff um i I could this answer could literally be an hour um just because there's been so much auction action lately so i i went with a very specific answer which is two different references uh two different versions of the same reference uh from patek philippe and it's the 570 uh, so there's a 570 owned by uh, Andy Warhol that was sold uh, recently via Christie's. It went for $150,000. Absolutely gorgeous. And a 570 is like if you had, if you if you asked a, 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 a you know an artistically capable child to draw you a watch, <laughs> you would <laughs> you would end up probably with something that looks like a 570. They're just very elemental, mid-century, gorgeous, not too big. And then they you know it's Patek, so they made all sorts of different versions and based them around the same reference uh so the other one and this is a, a big dollar one was offered by uh phillips and it was a steel 570 with brigade numerals and a two-tone dial uh just achingly beautiful uh but clearly i'm not the only one who had some interest in it as it went for uh, 3.2 million dollars holy smokes <laughs> <laughs> uh lastly lastly to keep my answer not too long but any journe like literally almost any journe maybe not a calendar or maybe not like um a day uh, or pointer date complication, but a chronograph or 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 a resonance or something like that. Uh, even the chronometer blue, uh, big huge fan of the Jorn stuff, and uh, and I just love that it's a very specific 
direction as far as watch design goes. So that that's where mine would go. Uh, as far as like sport watches go, there's some dream stuff, but I know I would wear them less than a couple Seikos I own. So I feel like if I was going to go deep into a vintage sort of dream watch auction space, it would be something super collectible uh, like a, like a vintage Patek. Nice. I mean, you know, for me, I, I don't follow the auctions as closely. Um, you know, I, I see the results pop up or, or some announcements of interesting ones pop up on Hodinkee every now and then. But I rarely actually go and kind of peruse the the auction catalogs. But there is one auction house that that pops up that I always take interest in, and that's Watches of Knightbridge, Knightsbridge, um, which is, I believe, a London-based uh, auction house related to a, a retailer over there. And what specifically interests me is that they get a lot of uh, British-issued military watches that they auction. And, you know, of course, they get Seamaster 300s and, and mil subs. But um, every once in a while, they get these old 1980 and 1981 CWC automatic divers that were issued. And, and they're incredibly rare watches. I had written a story for Hodinkee years ago about uh, those watches and, and how that's the watch that replaced the mill sub for a very brief time. Uh, the, the ministry of defense approached CWC to, to make a new dive watch for them looking presumably for something more affordable than the Rolex. And just for two years, those were automatics and they're very difficult to find very rare watches. And occasionally they pop up on watches of Knightsbridge auctions. And, and so whenever I see that, I like to look and kind of check out what those are going for. And, they're certainly expensive, you know. I think they're north of, you know, ten grand. Um, but when you compare that to what you'd pay for kind of another uh, issued military diver um, from the UK, you know, that's a, that's a downright bargain. So I don't have a specific one. I was looking at their latest auction, which was in May, and they have it looks like six uh, CWCs that were that were sold, and uh, four of them were. The quartz version, which came later, which are still very cool. I own a couple of them, but uh, uh, the automatic is the one to have. And then, of course, they they've got the the chronographs as well. But um, yeah, I mean, those are kind of the only auctions I I look at. Yeah, so they've got some cool stuff. And man, their their page has a a really gorgeous Tudor Monte Carlo. Mm. <laughs> you can put that on my list too. Yeah, if I if I don't if I don't have uh, Patek five seventy money to buy, you know, something Andy Warhol once owned. <laughs> Although you know what, these days a Monte Carlo may not be that far behind. Yeah, uh, true. Who knows, right? The, yeah. the market's so crazy for watches right now. Yeah, but yeah, that's a, that the WOK. Uh, so that's uh, WOK dot auction, but it's watches of Knightsbridge dot com slash auctions. Uh, hit hit the show notes for that, obviously. And there's some uh, some really good stuff here. Some lovely Cartiers as well. Goodness. Mm, yeah. All right, let's uh, let's get to the next question, which is about watch mistakes uh, via Mike. Hey guys, Mike from South Texas, longtime listener. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made with a watch? I don't think that's something we talk about often. My biggest mistake was when I was probably 17 or 18. My dad, who I did not get along with well, handed me his Rolex Submariner, which was from the 70s and basically shoved it into my pocket without saying a word. And I took it, had it for a while. And again, like I said, we didn't get along great back in those days. I had no idea what it was worth. I took it to a local jewelry store. I said, I want to trade this for an Omega because I want to be like James Bond. And they said, sure, no problem. 
yeah, so got my Omega Seamaster 300 way back in the day. This was probably 40, 34 years ago now. And uh, so it was long gone. I miss it now, of course, and uh, wish I'd have kept it. And uh, hurt to know what the value of it probably is now. But anyhow, that started my lifelong love and quest for watches. And I've bought them, sold them, flipped them, and own a few that I really love. My current favorite watch right now is a Tudor Black Bay 58, and I pretty much hasn't left my wrist since they came out. So anyhow, I know that's a little more than a minute, but uh, I'd appreciate you guys talking about it. Thanks. Thanks for that, Mike. You know, sorry to hear about your uh, your regrets there. You know, I try not to think too hard personally about watches I've sold and, and kind of think back, oh, I wish I'd kept that. I think, you know, um, certainly there was a, a certain Pepsi bezeled 1675 GMT that I, I sold on. I, I can't even remember why I got rid of it because uh, it was a beautiful watch with great patina and in really good shape. But uh, I did. Um, but, you know, I had my fun with it. And uh, I have I have fond memories. So I, I don't really have any specific uh, regrets. I think, you know, I um, I used to have one of the the, the, the modern Omega Ploprofs that I bought when they first came out, like the first year. I think I bought it within the first month or two of of when they were released. Um, and, and, you know, I'd love to have that watch again. I think the only true mistake um, that I truly regret was pawning off my original Seiko diver that I bought in high school. I, I, you know, I think a lot about that watch and I wish I still had it. So, um, if I have one, one watch sale regret, regret, that would be it. And I think I netted, you know, I bought it for 85 or maybe a hundred bucks max. And I sold it for, I don't know, remember what I got for it, probably $40 or something. So too bad, but you know, that's yeah. life. How about you, James? Uh, mine's weirdly similar. I don't really have anything that I look back on as a mistake. I've never owned something that I couldn't rebuy. Like, I have a couple watches I wish I hadn't sold. I actually sold them all to the same person. He still has them. <laughs> David, you're probably listening. Um, you've got a Zen that I still adore and kind of wonder why I ever sold it. You've got uh, an, my Aerospace and you've got my Seiko World Timer. Those are three of the better watches I've had and, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed all of them. But also I had my time with them and I have to remember that the brain that I had that made that decision is not a stupid brain. Yeah. It's the same one I have today that, that is now looking back forlornly at not having it. And of the three, the one that I would probably go back and even rebuy if optioned was, would be the aerospace. That was a, a charming watch that I, I, I would like to have in my collection. Yeah. But beyond that, yeah, I kind of like weirdly enough, Jason hit it, hit it very similar to where I'm landing. Like I kind of wish I had kept my first Seiko. <laughs> I had a monster, a black monster. That that I've been looking at monsters a lot recently. I made a couple offers on uh, on orange versions, and none have really come through. You know their pricing is is a little up from from when it was back in the day. But I, I remember I bought one from Creation Watches or a site like that. Uh, you know, a long long time ago, long before I started writing about watches, and and just absolutely adored it. And for whatever reason, I, it was one of those things where I think I had spent my time with it, and then I was done. But now I want more time with a with a monster, so I might snag an orange one uh, yeah. in the next little while. They're not a fortune; they're a little expensive for a seven S twenty six caliber, but uh, not a big issue there. So thankfully, uh, yeah, I haven't made any any big uh, anything where I, I look back and go like, wow, that was a uh, that was a real doofus move on my part. It's just, you know, it's just watches. They come and go. Yeah. yeah. Good question, though. But uh, good question. And um, maybe uh, someday, uh, Mike, that uh, question that, that Rolex will make its way back to you. Right. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, next up, let's get one from Brent about uh, a one watch brand for a three watch collection. <laughs> 
Hey Jason, hey James, Brent Robiar from Athens, Ontario, Canada, Caliber321 on Instagram. Love the show, love that you're back to once a week. My question, if you could choose only one watch brand from which to build a three-watch collection within your means, which brand would it be and which watches would you choose? Cheers. Keep doing what you do. Well, Brent, thanks so much for that question. Uh, and and obviously for your Canadian sense of brevity uh, and, and a solid Instagram account as well. So that's uh, worth a follow for anyone who wants to uh, keep up with Brent and what he's up to. Uh, Jason, where do you land for this? It's a one watch brand, but you get three watches, but it has to be within your means. So there's a few few stipulations there. Yeah, this reminds me of our challenge episodes. We, we've yeah. done one for Seiko um, mm-hmm. and, and then for Oris. And I think both would be great ones for for you know what i can yeah. afford and and lots of good choices i'm actually going to go with uh for today i'm gonna i'm gonna say seiko um i'm kind of in a seiko jag this summer and uh i i think what i want to do with with my funds whatever those may be this isn't a, a strict challenge so we'll kind of just be loose with it but i'm i'm gonna go vintage and i'm gonna get a pogue i've, I've never owned a pogue uh this is like the 6139 chronograph with the um, yellow with dial. The, with the yellow dial and the Pepsi right. bezel. I mean, just crazy cool watch. I, I've tried one on a couple of times and I, I feel like one it day. It is weird that you've one. never owned that. Yeah. That's yeah. it. That's in your in your space, I think. <laughs> it sure is, yeah. So I think I'm gonna go with a like a vintage pogue, which I think you can get for a thousand to twelve hundred dollars. And um and then I need a I need a solid modern dive watch that I can just wear and beat on. And that's a tougher one. I think you know the SPB line is certainly Certainly uh, intriguing and probably more in terms of what I can afford. Um, but I'm going to swing for the fences and, and get an SLA 037 diver. Um, you know, just to. 037 is blue? Uh, is that the blue one? Uh, 017 was the first 017. one. 017. All right. Yeah, I think I'll go with the SLA 017. So the um, kind of the higher end movement of the, of the vintage style uh, dive watch. I, I think, you know. I could certainly go with an SPB, but I, I think you know, in this uh, fictional uh, hypothesis, I'm gonna I'm gonna go big here, and then uh, I I want a dressier one. I want a, I want a Grand Seiko. If if we're lumping Grand Seiko in with Seiko, I think and you are I killing. Think I'm gonna, <laughs> I think I'm gonna do some something dressy. Um, you know, either like their hand wound, smaller, you know, very simple uh, GS, or you know, I have the uh, S. I think it's the SBGM. 21 or 221 i can't remember which but the 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 beautiful ivory dial gmt that i actually own that i bought in tokyo at the boutique there Uh, i think that trio would be a very nice uh you know depending on whether you go spb or sla sub ten thousand dollar uh trio of of watches from the same brand that are very different watches you get this colorful vintage chronograph from you know arguably the first brand to have a automatic chronograph and then a modern dive watch, watch that you can just wear 90% of the time. And then this kind of dressy travel GMT from Grand Seiko. Yeah. So that's, that's where I'm landing. What about you? Well, I'm really regretting just letting you go first on these questions. What I'm, <laughs> what, how I'm feeling at the moment. Um, yeah. If, if we're allowed to do Seiko and combine Grand Seiko, mine's largely similar. Um, it'd be an SPV 143. It's a watch I absolutely adore. I can't take it off my wrist. I put it on a Perlon today. And I think that's probably where it's going to be for the summer. Um, I just absolutely adore this watch. I think it's for everyone who asks, it's worth every penny of the $1,200 they ask for it. <laughs> I, I just think it's fantastic. There's now seven versions, I think. 
And I'm hoping that we start to see a little bit of a modding culture. I'd love a, a steel, like a bright steel mm. bezel instead of the dark mm. one at some yeah. point in the future. I'd also love a luminous bezel um, if that becomes available. So I think over time that that'll be there. But uh, it'd be an SPB-143, a Gen 1 monster, black or orange, probably orange, just because the SPB-143 is very dark in, in its coloring. And then uh, I would also go with a GS, um, but I would be spending the bulk of my means on a vintage 3180. So that's the original Grand Seiko. Oh, And I priced these out just before the pandemic and because I was going to be in Japan and I had intentions to buy one. And, you know, they start the floor, the real floor, and this is a rough floor, is going to be around four or five grand. And then you're going to go up from there. So I think it would be in the same money range as an SLA 017. You know, you're talking five, six, seven thousand dollars. And it'd be a lot to spend on a watch, but I think they're deeply collectible. And like the like the uh caliber five seventy or the the Patek reference five seventy I ref- I mentioned in a, a previous question, it, it is a very elemental dress watch. It's a beautiful creamy ivory dial, yellow gold case, mountain hands. You can even get ones that have an engraved Grand Seiko signature, which was done by hand into the dial face. Uh, very difficult to find now in great condition. So I'm not going to say I would get that generation, uh, but something from that. This is the watch that they have now remade several times. The SBGW 252 being the most, I think, the most original. That's of 2017. But they've done this a few times now with different metals and versions. And you can tell by the color of the seconds hand which one it is and that kind of thing. Uh, a, a watch that I absolutely adore. Probably my favorite Grand Seiko. Um, I love the modern one as well. But of course, a modern solid yellow gold watch is uh, is going to really slam that budget uh, and, and I'd like to be I'd like to be realistic in what I would spend which and and I think you know if I were liquidating my entire stock these days to buy three watches I think I could make these three happen <laughs> that's a fun question yeah for sure let's uh jump to the next one from David who wants to spend Christmas in Bonaire who doesn't greetings Jason and James this is Dave from Atlanta Georgia Really appreciate all the content. You guys keep up the good work. This is a question that is going to be more for Jason than I believe James. With all the travel restrictions that are finally beginning to open up a little bit, my wife and I are considering taking a vacation over Christmas to someplace warmer than Atlanta. Uh, And with everything that Jason has said positive about Bonaire over all the years, we're considering trying to do Christmas in Bonaire with my wife and myself and my 18-year-old and 21-year-old. Kind of curious about any tips or insight that you could give us. Um, We are not divers. Uh, We have done snorkeling in the past, a lifetime ago, my wife and I. So snorkeling does hold some interest. Going someplace warm, going someplace different. Going someplace with a beach and with uh, sun is very appealing. So, like I said, appreciate the good work and uh, look forward to hearing your responses. Thanks. All right, David. Uh, appreciate the question. Um, I'll, I'll take this one, having been been to Bonaire in I think double digit times, um, and and you know after after this past year, I'm I'm itching to get back there as well. Um, I do think that if you're not a diver. Uh, I'm going to actually suggest that you look into, I'm um, not to, not to diss Bonaire, but it's, um, it's such a dive destination, but if you want more kind of, uh, varied options of things to do, you might consider Curacao, which is, uh, the next Island over a very, just a short hop over, 
uh, from Bonaire, and, and they're definitely, I think, even more direct flights to, to Curacao, depending on where you live. Um, it's a similar feel. It's it's also a Dutch Caribbean island. Um, you know, kind of the architecture is similar and, and, and that sort of thing. But it's uh, Willemstad, which is the main city. There's a bigger city. There are just more eating and shopping options. The landscape is a little more varied, um, you know, equally good diving and snorkeling options if, if you want to, uh, to do that. Um, but, but I think there are a few more beaches. Just there's a little bit more to do there uh, topside. But, you know, certainly I'm, I'm not going to disagree with anyone's choice to go to Bonaire. I think, you know, if, if you want to take up diving, it's a wonderful place to learn, uh, whether you or, or your kids or whatever. I mean, I think I, I can think of no better place to just do a bunch of easy diving, whether you're going from a boat or off the beach. Um, there, there's some interesting history there, some, you know, an old uh, lighthouse, um, some kind of uh, bleak remains of the colonial uh, past uh, that you can you can check out and, and some good wildlife, a lot of wild donkeys and goats and flamingos. And um, but uh, yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, rather than give very specific details, I've 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 advised a lot of people on Bonaire. And if you want to you know, drop me an email. You can you can just write to the graynado at gmail.com and I'd be happy to, you know, paste in some some uh, tips on, you know, places to eat or places to dive and, and that sort of thing. Uh, if you, Best if place you, for uh, uh, iguana stew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, Your favorite. That, <laughs> that would be a tip <laughs> on what to avoid. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, good good choice, David. I think, you know, Bonaire um, is, is clearly one of my favorite places and uh, highly recommended. So... Uh, Thanks for the question. Uh, Next up, we've got a question from Felix, who's planning a very long trail run and wants to know which watch to take. Hi, James and Jason. It's Felix from the High French Alps. Now, depending on when this goes out, I'm either just about to embark on or I've just got back from a 330-kilometer trail run along one of our local rivers from the source up here in the mountains to where the river flows out into the Rhone in Avignon in the southeast of France. Now, I'm going to take four or five days to do this. Um, I'm camping out each night. I might take one of my dogs with me for some company, um, but you know the question that's coming up. I've decided which watch I'm taking. Um, What I want to know is from your current collections, which watch would you take on this type of adventure, a 330-kilometer trail run along a river in the French Alps? Now, the only rules are no digital watches, no GPS watches, no smart watches. So basic analog watches can be quartz, can be automatic. And that's question one. And question two, if you could choose any watch available, which watch would you take with the same three rules? If anyone wants to follow my escapades on this crazy little adventure, you can get me on Instagram at the Fasting for Fitness Club or search Fasting for Fitness on YouTube and you can see, uh, you can see what I'm up to. I hope I'll make it. Or if you're listening to this, once I've got back, I have made it. Um, keep up the good work, guys. Really loving the show and great to know they're going to be weekly. Cheers. Bye. What a what a bonkers uh, escapade you've got going there, Felix. And uh, short answer is I will not be doing that <laughs> that run anytime soon personally. Uh-huh. <laughs> James, what what's your take on this? Uh, you, you're more of a runner than me. What uh, Which watch of your own would you take? My inclination personally would be towards a digital watch of some sort. Um, but I think without, it would be something like the Aerospace, which isn't in my personal collection these days, um, but is light and, and very easy to read and has the ability to do things like the chronograph and the rest. But maybe that breaks the rules being digital. So I would say probably something like the SPB or 
just a simple, like any reliable, non-fussy, not too heavy automatic. Uh, at a certain point, like for that task, I, I wouldn't even, it's, it's not, I wouldn't be on my, my radar to pick a, a, a watch necessarily. You know, I think a, a C4 would be great for that. Um, uh, SPB, uh, uh, you know, something with good loom is going to be important. You know, that can be helpful if you're moving around and dealing with at night and then maybe the importance of, of timing when you leave and when you go to bed and those sorts of things. So I, th- I think that's where I would land. Yeah. Any uh, dream choice in terms of anything that's out there currently available? Hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to think of like what, what what would kind of suit the suit the task. Maybe a, a like some something in titanium, I suppose. Mm, yeah. Uh, I think the other one that would be really good for this would be like a marathon navigator. Right? Oh yeah, good idea. I, it's not really a dream choice. That's that's watches a few hundred dollars. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, a nylon case doesn't weigh anything. A useful bezel, of course. It, it has a, a the a tritium tube loom, so that's going to be great. I think that's probably where I would where I would land something like that. Yeah. Not really the task where I would take a dream watch either. Yeah, yeah. Richard yeah. Meal. How about you? <laughs> oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Some it's not going to weigh that much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be a little hard to read as you're jouncing up and down looking at your wrist, but you mm-hmm. know, it, it would certainly uh, hold up and be nice and light. Um, current collection, boy, that's tough. You know, I, I was, I was going to say, um, you know, light uh, it sits close to the wrist with um, a really good rubber strap that doesn't chafe I, I think a nato can kind of come loose as you as you run a lot and it could probably flop around a little bit um the one that i have had you know over the past couple of months the elliot brown holton is a nice feel on the wrist um you know it's it's a little bit subjective you know it'll wear on everybody's wrist differently um but even though it's a, a steel watch and not ultra light um it wears tight to the wrist and it's got just a superb rubber strap um but then again and lately i've been wearing my my Houdinki Blancpain and it's it's just a small slim watch and it just kind of is very unobtrusive um I'm not sure how useful it would be on a on a on a very long trail run it would be more of just a companion I guess and just to check the time of the day but maybe the dream choice if if I'm going to skip you know Richard Meal would be this uh I haven't actually handled one but the the Breitling Endurance which I think they kind of made with this sort of thing in mind uh, which is a quartz, like a super quartz, thermocompensated quartz chronograph in a, I think that's like a composite case. So it's very light, comes on a rubber strap. So you could, you could wear that. I think the chronograph is a 12 hour chronograph. So you could, uh, you could time your, your running with that. So, you know, I guess that would be the, that'd be the way I go. Yeah. And Felix, we hope you made it back or maybe you're underway or maybe you haven't left yet, but whatever, how, whatever point in this journey we are, you know, I hope the 330K <laughs> is fun. I hope your dog enjoys it. And uh, and I hope whichever watch you did choose, you didn't let us know uh, what, but maybe maybe drop us an email or throw a comment on the uh, on the show on the Substack and, and let everyone know what watch you did end up taking and, and how the run was. We'd lo- we'd love to uh, to hear, and we'll certainly uh, follow up on the uh, accounts that you had mentioned. Uh, next up, we've got one from Chris about uh, the difference between mechanical and quartz accuracy. Hello, James and Jason. This is Chris in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I'm a new listener to the Gray NATO, but I have been going back and listening to some of the older episodes also. A question that I have that you two may be able to help me with is that I would like to have a nicer automatic watch someday. You know, maybe a Doxa or an Oris or one of the uh, the many brands you discuss. My concern is that the accuracy of those is not uh, equal to that of a quartz watch. 
how can I get over that hurdle of expecting an automatic watch to be a perfect timekeeper and just learn to enjoy it and spend the extra money to get a better watch that may not keep as good a time as my cheap quartz watch. Thanks. Hey Chris, that's an interesting question, and, and my my gut says you gotta you gotta move how you move. If if like a mechanical watch, if the accuracy is important to the extent that the delta between a simple quartz watch, which you know that's seconds a month typically, and then a mechanical watch, which could be, you know, maybe five to say thirty seconds a day in either direction. Preferably, you would want it less than the thirty, but five was is pretty good performance. But of course, if you multiply that across an entire month. That's a an order of magnitude um, between kind of the two uh, options there, and and if it's just not something where the mechanical is going to appeal to you, I wouldn't fight it. In, enjoy quartz. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, you might even save some money in in this effort. Uh, but if you do want to go the mechanical route, I would say look into companies that that put accuracy forward. So Omega and Grand Seiko come to mind. You could even go Spring Drive, which gives you sort of a hybrid system between a mechanical and 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 a quartz system. And then with Omega, you're getting uh, Metis certification, excellent timekeeping, good magnetic resistance, all that kind of stuff. And I think that would allow you to at least hedge your bets as far as spending the extra money on a luxury mechanical timepiece, but still getting what would be considered very good accuracy within the world of a mechanical watch. That makes sense to you, Jason? It does. And I, I think, you know, I've had pretty good luck with with a lot of my automatics. And um, one of the, th- the things is that I wear watches, and this might be different for you, Chris, but I wear watches in a rotation where, you know, I'll wear a certain watch for maybe a week max, and then I'll switch to a different watch, which means I'm taking the one off, setting it aside, it runs down, and I'm wearing a different one for a few days. But then when I pick up the other one, I got to rewind it and reset it anyway. So the accuracy over the long term is a bit of a moot point. Um, yeah. But I also feel, you know, if you get a watch that is rated or, or, or claims to come close to chronometer certification, which is a minus four plus six seconds per 24 hours. I, I'd read this a long time ago that, that even that amount of drift over 24 hours is still, if you look at the total seconds in a day, that's still 99.995% accurate. So we're talking really good accuracy from something that is running yeah. on a wound spring that's releasing its energy through you know a series of gears and springs and i think that is something that it's like a mental shift i think you you have to embrace the fact that this is something that is entirely mechanical that is still able to achieve this incredible accuracy without a you know printed circuit board or a battery um Mm -hmm. and i i think that's kind of where i'm at i i don't i'm not a huge kind of accuracy fiend you know I'm, i'm not that focused on that but uh, i do appreciate the fact that that these watches are able to come pretty darn close um despite the fact that they're entirely uh, mechanical i think um you know you kind of buy it for other reasons than than strictly hoping that it's exactly right uh, all the time yeah and and like james said i think you know if that is truly important to you that your watch is always kind of as close as possible then quartz is the way to go and maybe if you want to go high end you go with like a, a grand seiko quartz or something that's like hyper accurate yeah, that's a great point as well. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much for that question, Chris, and for finding the show. We're uh, absolutely thrilled to have you on as a listener. And again, thank you so much for sending in a question. That's uh, we, we appreciate it uh, very much. 
Um, all right. So next up, let's get to a birth year watches question from uh, Dave. Good morning, guys. This is Dave from Atlanta, Georgia, and I wanted to ask you about your thoughts or opinions on birth year watches. A birth year watch for me would be a watch manufactured in 1969, and I have kind of you know, narrowed my, my thoughts down to about one of two watches. One of them would be a Bulova Devil Diver. The other would be a Seiko 6139 Chronograph, both of which I suspect I could get a decent example in the range of $1,000 plus or minus. I'm leaning towards the Seiko because I like the the heritage and the story behind this particular model, particularly related to Seiko's presumably first to market of the automatic chronograph of the three the three uh, manufacturers that were pushing for that in late 1969. But I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts and if it matters any the the chronograph that I would go for would be the blue-faced 6139, not the more iconic yellow-faced. So appreciate your thoughts, and as always, also appreciate the uh, the very good content. Thanks in advance. Bye. Good question, Dave. Uh, thanks for submitting it. I'm, I'm going Seiko, 100%. Uh, I think uh, I love the Devil Diver. I think those are cool watches, but if you're, if you're going for a birth year and your birth year happens to be the year that the first automatic chronograph was released, I think, I think that's the way to go. I think it, it's a great story. I think that's uh, just a, an iconic and underrated watch in terms of what its value continues to hold fairly affordably. You know, certainly it's a subjective choice. I, I think you're leaning Seiko a little bit too, but if if I were held to to make a choice, uh, I would also go Seiko. And I think the blue dial is a fantastic, uh, fantastic option. Very versatile. Look, would look great on a leather strap, or if you can find one of those original H-Link bracelets, uh, all the better. So good luck with that, and uh, and uh, yeah, enjoy the watch, whatever you get. Yeah, I absolutely agree. <laughs> I literally have nothing to add. That's the perfect case. <laughs> I would go with the Seiko. I think the blue dial is. Super cool. I think that watch is an amazing um, birth uh, year watch and, uh, and and also just a cool piece of 1969. So I can I think it works for that date in more ways than one. It's not just an arbitrary play at the year uh, because of your where, when you were born. So yeah, uh, best of luck finding one. Uh, I, I think they're sweet and I, I, my guess is you'll absolutely love it. So thanks so much for that question and uh, do enjoy the watch. Uh, next up, we have a question from Nate about servicing your own watch. Hey, James and Jason. This is Nate from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I wanted to ask a question today about watch servicing and particularly about doing one's own watch service or repair. I got a turtle secondhand and it was running between 30 and 40 seconds behind per day. And while that didn't bother me, I did decide I would try to regulate it myself, um, not wanting to spend a couple hundred dollars to get it serviced. And thankfully, I was successful after a false start. The watch is running really well now. But I'm curious if either of you have taken on low-level service, uh, and if not, why? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Take care. Hey, Nate. Uh, interesting question. You know, I've, I've messed around with servicing some of my own watches, and, and in your case, uh, a similar scenario where the watch was kind of reliably running, I think, too fast. But it was fast in almost any position, including on my wrist. And it was an, just an older uh, dive watch that I had, a, a Seiko, and I opened it up and just regulated it down, and I made it quite slow, <laughs> uh, as as you do. Um, and I didn't have a proper timing machine, so it was this kind of process of like making an adjustment, kind of 
giving it a good shake and bake until it had some power reserve and then making some notes with photos comparing a time a, a synchronized time and, and the, the displayed time on the watch and going back and forth and I, I would say I got it a little bit better it, it you know it wasn't running as aggressively fast I wouldn't say it was like well regulated where it was kind of predictable in in five across five positions uh, but I actually I absolutely think that given the fact that you don't need a lot of space to service a watch and that if, if you're dealing with something like a Seiko the movements are available the stakes are pretty low if you're keen to do that kind of stuff with your hands and have the fine motor motor control and and can invest a little bit of money into the tools. I, I think it's probably a pretty good thing to learn. And then, of course, you can you can find courses online. You can buy books. I'll, I'll attach a couple of the books that I'm aware of in the show notes uh, that kind of walk you through basic watch functionality and 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 servicing. And and yeah, I'm I'm all for it. I've messed around with it a couple times. You know, at this point it would be something almost like a time sink to go that route. Uh, and I'm not against it. It's just a question of how much time I might have to put into doing something that I could send to someone and know that they would do it correctly the first time. Mm-hmm. And I would say in some ways, it also comes down to how much I intend to wear the watch. If it's something I might only wear occasionally, then I might I might do a little adjustment and then wear it the 10 times a year, five times a year that I might put that watch on. But if it's my day-to-day watch, I would like that watch to be kind of tip-top. And I don't think my skills are tip-top. So <laughs> I think that's how that works. Yeah, I um, I agree. I mean, I, I think also there's there's more to servicing a watch than the average kind of shade tree mechanic uh, might know about. I, I know that, mm-hmm. you know, regulating is one thing, you know, and I've I've dabbled a bit in that unsuccessfully largely. But, uh, you know, you take the back off, you give that little screw a twist and then you, you retime it and that sort of thing. But, you know, a, a, a proper you know trained watchmaker will tell you that that's kind of the end of the train when it comes to all that goes into a, a watch's timing. You know, we're talking about uh, gears and lubrication and all of this stuff that, that, that plays into the accuracy of a watch. And so um, if you're truly servicing a watch, that would mean disassembling it, cleaning the parts, reassembling, replacing worn parts and lubricating and then regulating and that is something I will never, I will never do. And then, of course, replacing gaskets. Um, that said, I I took a, a pocket watch, a three day pocket watch uh, course, servicing course, many years ago, and flew out to Pennsylvania and went to Lancaster to do that. And you know, I, I bought all the tools. Of, uh, um, the Timezone.com used to do a, a watchmaking school. Mm-hmm. They might still yeah, do one. And they they sell a kit, the basic kit. Um, and I believe it even came with a, a little pocket watch and I still have that. And, and you can sit and take it apart and put it together. And, um, there's like a printed, you know, little booklet that you can just follow along. It's, it's actually quite fun. I think as James said, you know, the stakes are pretty low if you're going with a, a inexpensive watch, maybe they, you're not relying on or that you'll not be heartbroken if you screw it up. And, uh, mm-hmm. in that case, I think it's fun. I think it's a great way to kind of appreciate mechanical watches and, and learn more about how they work. So, um, it all kind of depends on your level of ambition and, and risk taking and, and uh, budget, I suppose, too. So, yeah, let us yeah. know. Yeah, that'd be really cool. A fantastic winter task as well. Definitely. Yeah. That's buy that's a book, so buy the watch, buy a couple tools and just kind of get to business. Mm, I love that. Yeah. And, and see, the other thing is, you know, there's a few flea markets in my area. I'm actually planning to do a story on this for Hodinki that sell like old watches by the bag. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And they're just I'd like, I'm going to buy a bag for $50 or whatever it is and then see if I made money or <laughs> lost money. 
Um, but I mean, that that'd probably be a good way, yeah. uh, good way to do that. Um, and you'd end up with ones. And, and once you kind of knew what the movement was, especially hand wound movements, there's the complexity goes down a little bit. So that can yeah. be helpful, too. Yeah. In, uh, in dealing with it. So, Nate, uh, good luck on that on that journey. And if you end up, uh, you know, heading heading your way to woe step, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> best of luck with your your new career in, in servicing watches. That's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, next up, we've got one from Kieran about uh, a summer watch to celebrate uh, both a new kid and uh, a new job. Two big moves. Hey, James and Jason. This is Kieran calling from London. Um, first of all, I just want to thank you for all the pods you put out over the years, um, particularly the effort that you put in during this ongoing pandemic. Um, it's been a real lifeline for me and I'm sure a lot of others to still have these um, wishful thinkings about uh, road trips and, and gear that we will hopefully get to use again. Uh, my question to you is, um, I'm in the market for a new watch. I've had my first child this year, a little girl, and I have just switched careers into teaching, which is a big change and I want to market with a new watch. Currently, my everyday kind of watches, I have a Tudor Black Bay and a Seiko SKX 009. Um, I kind of want just a fun summer watch, which both of those are, but hey, here we are. At the minute, um, I am kind of debating between a Doxa Sub 300T Professional because I love the orange, I love that 70s kind of vibe. Just looks like a really fun watch do anything. yeah. And I'm kind of torn between that and a CWC uh, Mellor reissue, which I know Jason has written a lot about. Um, yeah, anything else that you would throw out there. A date, a date function is really handy, particularly as a teacher. And I like having the bezel timer just so I can keep track of little things during the day, which are the only things that are counting across the CWC. But yeah, thanks again for all you do. And uh, take care. Bye. Hey, Karen. Uh, thanks for the question and congrats on uh, on all your your recent life changes. That's awesome. I, I kind of feel like you've answered your own question on this one. I uh, you know you you mentioned uh, the date function and, and a timing bezel and kind of a good summer watch and and I mean you can't do better than a Doxa. I think if the, and especially if you like the orange dial um, and you've got mm -hmm. water resistance to burn. You've got the date, screwed on crown. They're, they're just super rugged. They wear really nicely on the wrist, no matter what size wrist you have, really. You know, I have a longstanding love for CWC and, and all their watches, and, and the Melora is a cool watch. But the Doxa is um, a definitely a, just a higher quality watch. It's just a, it's just a better, better watch. For one thing, the CWC is quite tiny. It's hand wound. There's no date. Uh, it's got an acrylic crystal, so, you know, you, chances are it's going to get dinged up. It, it just feels like a slightly more fragile watch, which is ironic because it was a, you know, army issue field watch, but I, I just feel like in this case, you got to go Doxa. And I, you know, you asked if we have any other ideas and I feel like for what you're describing, kind of a rugged summer, colorful watch with a date and, and, and a timing bezel, you'd be hard pressed to, to find anything besides a a Doxa. I mean, you already have a Seiko, so you know I'd, I'd skip Seiko this time around. But uh, James, do you have any any alternatives besides those? Yeah, you know the thing that strikes me is he's he's got two dive watches already. Mm, so yeah. maybe maybe not a dive watch. Uh, you know, yeah. Maybe look at a, a Halios uh, Universa. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, which, you know, would give you a nice summery sports watch. You can get one with the uh, pastel dial. Uh, gives you very much a summer vibe. Um, the Fairwind, of course, can be optioned with a different bezel than a dive bezel. So maybe that could be more of a travel watch. Um, and then, of course, the other one to consider, and, and I'm an absolutely massive fan of this watch. I'll even include my own write-up in the show notes, is the Aster and Banks Fortitude. Oh, yeah. So it's just a really, really gorgeous, and you can get a colorful, like a mint green dial. Imagine a dive watch with no dive bezel, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a, a nicely sized, super legible, date at six, really nicely made, nicely finished, great bracelet. And you're not you're not spending anywhere near Doxa money on either of these options. These are well under $1,000 for the, for the Fortitude. Um, a, a really, really good option. And then the, the last one is is, you know, if you're... Depending on where you are with your SKX, maybe maybe combine the move and not end up with three dive watches and flip an SKX for an SPB. Oh yeah, um, you know, sell one or or sell to a friend or or give it to a, a relative or or what, whatever position you may be in, and then uh, kind of jump up and and try out an SPB. But honestly, if you have the Black Bay, the SPB is a little bit redundant, as is the SKX. To be fair. Um, I'm not saying don't have both. I, we, everybody's got too many dive watches, right? But if if we're talking about advice, you know, at a certain point, you'll end up with a lot of dive watches. Um, so yeah, my money might, might might lean towards something like the Mint Dial Fortitude, a pastel dial from from Halios. Uh, but also, hey, I, I'm not going to talk you out of a Doxa. They're rad. They're and they're a singular thing. Yeah, it's it's one thing to say you might have too many dive watches if you end up with three watches and they're all dive watches within two millimeters of each other mm. but a doxa is its own thing entirely yeah. so if, if that's what your heart wants get the doxa it's not going to let you down they're nicely made they're super fun and they're super specific in their appeal so they won't feel like either of your other dive watches so yeah enjoy that and uh like jason said congrats on uh, on all the big moves sounds like things are going well for you and uh we in our part are quite happy for you and appreciate the question uh next up we've got one from uh russell about mountaineering watches Hello, James and Jason. This is Russell from Seattle. I'm looking for a replacement for my Sunto Ambit 3 Vertical. My passion is hiking and mountaineering. And while I love my Polar 16570, I need something with a few more features. Replacement needs to have an altimeter, both barometric and uh, GPS, and the ability to program a route, for instance, uh, waypoints on the Muir Snowfield for poor visibility days. And I like a heart rate monitor. So here's my questions. I've always looked at tech as kind of a rental. You never really own it in a permanent sense because after five years or so, it's going to start getting kind of glitchy. So that's true. Why buy the the fancy Garmin Sapphire? Do you guys think that my perception of tech is true? And then my other question is, is my Sunto uses a chest strap for the heart rate monitor, which I'm fine with. How tight do you have to wear a watch with a wrist heart rate monitor? And I ask because I don't particularly care for tight watches. Anyhow, thanks for the great podcast. Jason loved the book and uh, hope to hear an answer. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. uh, Thanks, Russell. Uh, Good question. Um, You know, I feel like the, you know, with these technology watches, with these, these connected watches, uh, you know, James and I are both diehard kind of Garmin folks these days. And I feel like you sort of buy into that that ecosystem um, with the app and the watch, I, you know, in our cases, we have several Garmin's each. So I can't really have a basis for comparison. I used to be more of a Sunto guy, but now I don't kind of know what their current range is these days. But 
I can't say enough good things about the Garmin, uh, like the Phoenix, for instance, the Phoenix six that I have, I wear it, I put it on to go cycling or kayaking or, or hiking or whatever. And then I take it off when I'm done and I'm okay with that. I, I think they're fantastic. I, I would say with regard to your question about heart rate monitor, I have had some glitchy issues with the wrist heart rate sensor on mine, particularly when I'm cross country skiing. And I don't know if it's because I'm gripping poles and kind of squeezing as I'm pushing off at the poles. Maybe it's something with the muscles in my, in my forearm that are kind of messing with the, the optical sensor there. But, uh, other than that, it works great for biking and other stuff that I do. So I don't wear mine particularly tight. I also don't like a, a really tight watch. And, and if you do still like the, the chest strap, Garmin sells a, a chest strap that you can sync with the watch as well. Um, but I think the Phoenix, uh, James, correct me if I'm wrong, will do everything he wants. Waypoints, altimeter, it has a barometric and a GPS altimeter. Uh, of course, the heart rate sensor, as well as all the other stuff. And uh, so that would be my vote. I mean, I, I think for what you want, you could even go with an instinct. Mm. Um, and depending on how, how far out into the middle of nowhere you're going, you might be better off with an instinct or, or a, a platform that connects with the inReach Mini. Yeah, might actually end up bringing you up to the price of a Descent or, or a well-featured Phoenix. Um, yeah, I, I don't follow uh, Sunto. I've, I've kind of, like Jason said, kind of found a solution in Garmin that has never let me down. So I, I didn't really look around. I, I owned two Suntos back in the day. I had a, a Core, a two versions of the Core. And um, and I have lots of experience with them, but not not once they hit the GPS and the connected world. For that, you know, I, I would say that while... I agree that tech gets outdated quickly because it's tech. Um, I still have a Phoenix 3 that I loan to people when they're curious about the Garmin platform because it still does all of its things. Hmm. It doesn't have the same features as a 6 or, or a Descent, but everything that it says that it does still works today. And, and the accuracy is not different uh, for a lot of it. Um, so I, w- I would say may- maybe do a deep dive into the Garmin lineup and find the one that suits you. If you have the money for the Phoenix, that's the one to buy for sure. And then obviously they have all sorts of forerunner models that are more for running and then some general models like the Venu. And then you have the instinct kind of below the, the Phoenix. So there's, there's a lot of range there. Uh, what, what I would say about the tightness on your wrist is you don't have to wear the watch tight. I actually haven't had um, the problem that Jason mentioned, but I, I don't cross country ski. But biking, swimming, um, running, uh, all, all sorts of sports, really. Lots of hiking and covered in sweat. Uh, the heart rate monitors never let me down. And I have the Descent on currently. And it's, um, it's, it would be as loose as any of my watches. Probably more loose than how I wear a NATO. Because I like the watch to stay at a certain place on my wrist when I'm wearing a NATO. Um, so I haven't had any issue with, uh, with them having to be tighter because of the the heart rate monitor, they seem very accurate or very consistent in being able to pick up as long as they're against your skin in some way. And then like Jason said, you can very easily, especially if you want, you know, very reliable heart rating, um, you do so with, with the chest strap. So that's not a bad option either. And it's just one of their ANT plus sort of uh, connected devices. There's a whole world of those, both from Garmin and from other suppliers that use the same protocols. So that's uh, something to, to consider. Um, but definitely don't don't cross off the instinct until you've kind of hit checked your own checklist of of options um, because you might not even require you know bumping up as high as a phoenix which if you're on a really long trip will need to be charged and stuff like that whereas 
the instinct, you can go solar, you can go, you can have a, a little bit more flexibility in terms of how it's powered and how long that power is going to work for you and that kind of thing. So and that, that's what I recommend. But Russell, I hope you have some great adventures with whatever you, uh, with whatever you choose. And if you do end up getting, uh, getting the instinct and have some feedback from your side, drop us an email. I'd love to hear more about how these, uh, how these are getting used out in the world. Uh, next up, we've got a, uh, a question about dive watches from Andrew. Hey, James and Jason. This is Andrew from Denver by way of San Diego. Big fan of the show. Got two questions for you guys. First, what would be your ideal dive watch that you would take with you on a blue water dive trip based off of functionality? I think we all know dive watches have become obsolete over the years with the emergence of dive computers. However, my dad recently just gifted me a Doxa Sub 300 Shark Hunter Edition which has the depth on the bezel, which you can use to help plan your bottom time and deco stops. And I actually find myself wanting to give that a shot on my next dive trip and kind of bring it back to the old days. Um, So yeah, basically what would be your ideal dive watch based off functionality that you would bring on a trip? And second, this is to Jason. Um, If depth charge were to be made into a movie, who would you cast in the roles of Tusker and Sam? Um, I'm very interested to hear this answer, but, um, anyways, uh, thanks guys. Appreciate all you do and, uh, hit me up if you ever need a dive buddy. Cheers. Well, thanks for the, uh, the question, Andrew. Um, I'll, uh, I'll jump in here, uh, first off and, uh, you know, in terms of, of depth charge actors, I'll take the, the second part first. Uh, I've got to convince James Stacy to take the lead role. I think, uh, I think he'd make, <laughs> he'd make a great Tusker. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I, I, uh, well, who would you have play Sam? Sam, uh, you know, I, I keep picturing uh, Freda Pinto. She's not Sri Lankan. She's Indian, of course, but uh, she's uh, she's a good pick, and uh, she's actually married to a guy. I can't remember his name. I think it's Corey Tran. He's a really talented outdoor photographer and adventurer, um, uh, and they kind of make a good couple. I can almost picture both of them in those roles. But I, I, I think you know, jokes aside, I. I kind of have Bradley Cooper in mind for for Tusker. Ah, okay. I don't know if he's getting a little, little too old for that role. I I don't know, but he has that kind of look that that I envision. Um, but uh, you know, I'm open for offers. So Andrew, if you're if you're a budding actor and you're you're up for the role, we can we can talk. Yeah, um, I uh, if if I can, I want to jump in on this because I, I had yeah. some I had some ideas in my mind. Oh, yeah. I think T- Tusker could be Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh yeah, uh, who always does a beautiful job. And the the what I like about <laughs> Jalen Hall even more than uh, Bradley Cooper is that um, I don't know what it is about Cooper, but I have trouble like forgetting that he's Bradley Cooper. Oh yeah, yeah. Whereas with Jalen yeah. Hall, like I just watched Nightcrawler the other night, and that's like the yeah. creepiest, <laughs> scuzziest role played by a big name actor in a long time. Really? Huh. And and it's he just disappears. Like after about five minutes, you're not looking at Jake Gyllenhaal; you're just looking at Nightcrawler guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this you know Lewis or Lou or whatever his name. He does and, tension um, well too. He does that. Kind oh, of like, absolutely. You know, nervous yeah, yeah. energy and he has, sort of thing. He has that. I think, and I think he has a little bit of the. I don't actually know where he grew up. I, sh- I it doesn't. I, but I think he could do the the Midwest Michigan thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. Um, and then I I you know the 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 Sam line would be a little bit difficult, but I think like Zoe Saldana would be kind of the right age. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, and and she does a good job, and I, I think that I think that she would kind of work in there. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's that's a that's a fun. But there's a, it'd be fun to try and do the entire like. There's a a pretty good group of people 
that could be represented from different parts of the world in, in that in the in the character list. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think uh, I think yeah, I would I would I would at least want to c- talk to Joe Hall's people and see if he was available <laughs> for a, you know a reading or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. All right, on to the dive watch uh, part of the question. Um, mm-hmm. Awesome! What a great gift, a sub three hundred T, wonderful watch. And you know, the first time you take a, a doxa diving, you you never forget. I mean, it's it's just such a so at home underwater. Just looks so great on the wrist. I would say that the the Nodico scale on the on the bezel is uh, it's still useful um, only for your first dive because once you get into repetitive diving, those those Nodico limits uh, change. Um, but still, you know, fun, fun dive watch to, to take diving. I, I feel that, you know, most dive watches these days do a, a perfectly good job. I mean, I think they have since the, the 1950s and 60s. They're, they're waterproof. They have a, a good bezel and good legibility and they don't leak. And I think that's what you need. But I feel like there's a sweet spot with dive watches that, you know, nowadays, if you can get a watch that's kind of cheap enough to, to afford um, but it's not too precious that you care too much about it, not to do stuff with, um, you find one in that sweet spot and it depends on everybody's budget, but that's what a, a dive watch should be because this isn't so much about tracking bottom time or decompression stops or anything like that. This is about, you know, going anywhere, doing whatever you want, not worrying about your watch and then being able to wear it back home and, and look at it when you're sitting at your desk bored the next week and say, ah, this thing was just down at the on the reef last week. You know that that's the most yeah. important thing uh, nowadays with a dive watch. It's not a specific dive watch. It's whichever one you choose. And but I think you've got a good one there in the Doxa. Yeah, I would add. Uh, you know, yeah. If you're asking like what dive watch, any almost any dive watch now will will do their a casual dive uh, really well. Their feature set doesn't change wildly until you get to the quality of things like the bezel, the bracelet, the straps, that sort of thing. So I mean, a peak for me is still Pelagos. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, if 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 you want to buy like the modern expression of the watch that that people were of the goals that people set forth in say 1953 with dive watches, it's the Pelagos. Yeah. It's light. It can be worn all the time. It's very straightforward in its use. Uh, the loom is excellent. The legibility is ridiculous. The bracelet's incredible. And then if for whatever reason you don't want the bracelet. The rubber is also incredible. Like yeah. best, maybe the best bracelet in the world, and then one of the best rubber. Uh, options out there too so I'm, i'd be deep on the pelagos you cannot you absolutely cannot go wrong with doxa uh, just two 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 entirely different ways of of doing the same task in terms yeah. of aesthetics yeah um the the i think the pelagos makes more sense as a mechanical backup to a dive watch today mm. because the bezel is a simple elapsed time bezel the the doxa is a little bit more of a throwback in that it's trying to do some dive computer ability yeah and Unless you're planning on foregoing the dive computer, which is outside the realm of my dive skills, I, I would say almost any dive watch is going to do it for sure. Yeah. But the the Doxa might be more fun than all of them. What, what, can I ask you a question? Why 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 don't either of us or why doesn't why don't both of us have a Pelagos? I mean, uh, they don't com- make a GMT. <laughs> it comes up I've every show. We, we talk about yeah. Pelagos as the the, and I, you know I could totally see like the left hand drive the LHD one on my wrist right now, and I would. I'd probably wear it nonstop. I mean, it's just the perfect, yep. perfect watch. But yep. that's that's yeah. A for me, I, I, yeah, I would go. I would go to a Pelagos if I consolidated some of my dive watches. Yeah, I don't need another dive watch today, and to add the best one as the fifth option in my lineup <laughs> is kind yeah. of a weird move. Yeah. So I would either need to kind of step away from like sell off a bunch and then buy a Pelagos, which I think is a great option. Yeah. Um, but there is this thing, and, and this comes up on the show pretty frequently. But there's this thing in the back of my mind that. 
at any moment they could they could do a, a Pelagos 58 where it'd yeah. be 39 millimeters and I would mm-hmm. like it even more. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with the 41, but for me the 39 would be better. And um or they would do a GMT because the Pelagos is a 41 millimeter case and the BB GMT is a 41 millimeter case, so conceivably the movements would drop in. Yeah. And yeah. um I, in my if if I can put this out into the world, I'm going to I'm going to secret this out or whatever that book was called a few years back where you imagine things you want and then they show up. Mm. In my mind, the ideal would be the the same format as the Bremont 302, where it still has a dive bezel. Yeah, yeah, and it has an internal 24 hour indication. Mm-hmm. Because I don't I don't want to give up. I don't want the Pelagos to become a travel watch. I want True, it to be a dive right. watch with some travel function. Yeah, yeah. And and imagine you know imagine if you will if you can you know kind kind of have a fun time with this. Just imagine having. A 39 millimeter titanium Pelagos with all the same features that you have now and a dive bezel and an internal GMT. Mm. I would liquidate all my dive watches for that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be a, like arguably perfect watch. Yeah. So it's that that for me, the reason I don't have a Pelagos is because that's on the on the horizon, I believe, at some level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe I'm crazy. I have no evidence to support this. We have people at Tudor who do occasionally listen to the show and They've never said anything to me that would suggest this is coming, and and I'm not putting words in their mouth. I'm saying them with mine. But that's what that's why I don't have a Pelagos. I would absolutely love to see one that was essentially just peak dive, peak modern dive watch. Yeah, give me a, a great dive watch and then an internalized 24 hour scale. Yeah, yeah, be so fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Enjoy your diving, Andrew, and uh, hopefully you uh, get a chance to put the uh, the doxa to good use under and above the water. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we may have to send you some sort of paperwork about um, whatever comes of the the uh, depth charge movie, some some NDAs and some <laughs> other stuff. We'll we'll we'll, we'll uh, come across that path somewhere in the future. Uh, next up, we have one from Paul about GMTs. Hey, Jason and James, this is Paul from Washington State. As things are starting to open up, I'm looking to travel some more, and I think I'm finally in the market to get a GMT watch. I'm looking to spend on under $5,000, and I've been looking at either the Tudor or the Bremont. Any other brands that you would recommend in the sub-$5,000 range? Looking for um, what I would call a medium size watch probably nothing bigger than 42 millimeters thanks a lot enjoy your work i will just jump in paul and say um i'm gonna let james take this one uh, for the most part but i i think the tutor of the braemon are great choices um i think i would lean towards tutor just because of the, the functionality but uh, james i bet you have some other options up your sleeve yeah so under five thousand dollars for a gmt you have some options but you really have to decide if what you want is a travel watch, which I think is from your question that is what you want, or if you want a dive watch that can travel, mm. right? Because you have GMT divers. I, I made this distinction. It is kind of a silly distinction within the um, within the world of watches. But I really love the fact that if you look at GMTs, there's like 20 or 30 ways to solve the travel problem. And they're all specific to how you want to measure another time zone. And I, that's, it's what, one of the reasons I love these watches so much, GMT watches in general, travel watches. It's a subtle difference, but in my opinion, it's a huge difference in intent between the BBGMT and the Bremont S302. 
and one, the Braemont, is a dive watch that has the travel feature. This is like we talked about in the previous question and I wrote about in my 302 write-up. And then the Tudor is a proper travel watch. It's like a GMT Master, but made by Tudor. And it's meant for tracking you know, at least two, possibly three time zones, depending on how you decide to do the math. So you just have to kind of pick along those lines. They're both really well made. The The Tudor has a movement that's going to have to be serviced by Tudor. If that bothers you, then, you know, it's just something to know in advance. Whereas the, the Bremont movement isn't at a caliber. Uh, so it might be a little bit easier to deal with things like servicing down the road with the Bremont. But there might be scenarios in which it also has to go back to uh, the, you know, the, the wing outside of London. Uh, for service. So th- those are worth considering when you're buying a new watch, especially when you're considering a budget that's a lot, $5,000 a ton of money. But in the watch world, it's not, sadly. I do think you can get a ton of watch from either of these. Uh, the other ones to con- to consider would be, you could look at the Mito Ocean Star GMT. They're going to be a bit bigger than you wanted. And, and my hopes are that they they offer a smaller version in the future. And then the final option is you could find a watch that has a 12-hour bezel and bring your price range, range way down. Yeah. The the functionality just takes a little bit of mental math to, to figure it out. But once you've got it set, it's very passive. And it doesn't add any complexity or typically any cost to the, the watch or the movement or the servicing or the rest of it. But if you're if you're really trying to decide between the Bremont and, and the, the Tudor, decide if what you want is um, a local jumping travel watch by the Tudor. If you want a dive watch that also does a, a great job at tracking a second time zone, although not with the finesse of a local jumping movement, go with the Bremont. I don't think you can really go wrong with either. They're both just fantastic, like some of my favorite watches. So you're already onto uh, onto a pretty good list yeah. there. All right. Thanks, Paul, for the question. Uh, next up, we have a question from Lars who wants to talk about Swiss versus Japanese watches. Hello, Jason and James. Lars here from Germany. Thank you for everything you're doing and being the rock of sanity in this ever more crazy watch world. I've got two questions for you. What do you think is the difference between the Swiss and the Japanese watch brands or watch industry for that matter? In the online community, this question is often wiped away as comparing apples to oranges, but I think this is too easy an answer. Seiko, for example, makes an excellent product, whereas many Swiss brands seem to live to a large extent of the fame of the old days. That being said, and all things like the one watch guy, the heirloom piece, and the tool watch considered, which do you think is a better watch and why? The Tudor Black Bay 58 or the Seiko SPB 143? I know they come at totally different price points, but considering the higher marketing costs, the more exclusive distribution system, and the probably artificially limited production numbers of the Tudor, I think they might be closer than it appears at first sight. So, Looking at things like ruggedness, precision, and everyday wearability, which one wins as the one everyday travel and adventure watch? Thank you very much, and keep up the great work. Bye. Thanks for the question, Lars. Uh, James, I'll just give some brief thoughts on the first half of his question, but I think you have more experience with uh, the two watches that he mentioned. You know, I I couldn't agree with you more, Lars. I think the the big difference in my mind between Swiss and Japanese brands, uh, specifically Seiko in this case, and and uh, Swiss brands is there feels it feels like there's a little more uh, humility, I guess I'd say, when it comes to Japanese brands. I feel like they're a little more eager to please, a little more humble. Um, there's there's less pretension, more focus on on quality and kind of pride of of workmanship. Whereas, uh, as you mentioned, the the Swiss do tend to to look back at, at history a lot and kind of 
in some cases sort of rely on that for, for reputation. Um, you know, as long as most people listening and probably their parents and grandparents can remember, you know, the, the to say that you had a Swiss watch just meant that you had a high quality watch and there was really no reason to question that. But I think um, maybe it's because the Japanese, you know, kind of had to work a little harder for a number of years in the middle of the 20th century to kind of come up to that standard or, or gain that reputation. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like they've, they're like the hardest working, you know, brands and, and they've really excelled. Um, so that, those are kind of my thoughts. And I, I think the two watches you mentioned, um, both great, uh, James, I'm going to absolutely leave that entirely up to you because you've, you own one and you've handled both. Yeah. Um, so as far as Swiss versus Japanese, I think that the thing that really strikes me is the, the level to which the Japanese are unburdened by the idea of traditional luxury. Mm. Um, it's not that they don't understand luxury. It's a different understanding of the same idea and it's not one based in central Europe, right? Yeah. But literally by the nature of the question. Um, and, and where I think they excel is the idea that a nice thing doesn't have to cost a fortune. It has to be made in a considered manner. Whereas the traditional Swiss methodology is the ni- the more money you spend, the nicer it gets. <laughs> the other thing that, that that I think is crucial and that we don't talk about enough is uh, the the Swiss methodology towards watchmaking today is a conglomerate. Big. I mean, take Rolex aside, obviously, but Rolex is huge on its own. But I mean, Omega is part of Swatch. Uh, Tag Heuer is part of LVMH. You have these big groups. Yeah. And what you end up with is a somewhat more homogenized product. Um, a product that's meant to sell to a wider range of people. Whereas if you look at Seiko, it's an entirely different way of cracking the same egg where the vertical integration is so strong that they can make niche products at any price point. Hmm. So like, like imagine if Tag Heuer made watches that started at $150 <laughs> and topped out at what's, it, what's an Ichi cost? Yeah, Let's true. call it 100 grand. I don't remember. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't remember. They're expensive. That, that's, mm. that's the easy thing. Right up there with the best, and 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 when and the funny thing is, is when a Swiss brand offers an entry level, a newer, cheaper product, it's like demonstrably cheaper than than what than the thing you might have normally known from that brand. Whereas when when the Japanese offer a, a cheaper version, maybe the movement is more simple and won't keep time as well. But the details, the things you actually touch, aren't that vastly different than the better thing or the yeah. thing in the mid range. And then when, when you commit to the top tier price, all of the original tradition, uh, in this case, it, it would be Japanese tradition versus Swiss tradition, but watchmaking tradition is at some level internationalized now. The, it's all still there. So it's a, it's a much wider view of watchmaking. And I think that the Swiss format is both more narrow, but also much more, it's like less butter on more toast. <laughs> if that if if that makes any sense, yeah, yeah. Um, I I think it's just two very different ways of doing it. I absolutely think that the the Japanese methodology, much like Jason mentioned, because they came up largely from nothing in the mid century, like had to rebuild and restart all levels of industry. But you see this in their in in other things that they create. It's it's a technology forward, um, manufacturing forward, product forward sort of design. Uh, and 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 standpoint for for the brand versus this this heavy connection to the way we did things they you know they didn't normally do these things before say the war or not in the same metric whereas the Swiss watch industry just kind of paused during the war and then came back right and the same with the Central European vehicles like cars 
versus Japanese cars. That it's an entirely different philosophy, and I think that there's something much more accessible to the way that the Japanese view and design and, and create watches for an international audience. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then as far as SPB versus BB50, the BB58 is a better watch. Like it's more than double the money. Um, it is a, a, a much more accurate movement. The tolerances are better. Uh, the bezel is is better. The bracelet is certainly better. Uh, the finishing is better. The warranty is better. The after sales support is going to be better. Um, it just depends on what you want to spend. I mean, if you have $3,700 to buy a, a watch from one of the best names in watchmaking, in sports watchmaking, that, that's a great thing to buy. It's fantastic. I just it's, These aren't comparable items. They're similar in size and, and where you put them on your body. And maybe even to someone who's not into watches, they're similar in aesthetic, but they're two completely different levels of a product. It's, you know, it's, it's comparing something that's a little bit more um, uh, egalitarian, the SPB, at $1,000, uh, to something that's, that's entry-level luxury from a, you know, a huge name in watchmaking. So sure, with the Tudor, you're paying something for the name. You're paying something for the, the in-house movement. And the rest, but of course, the Seiko is an in-house movement too, with with the same, um, arguably more in-house. You know, with the Tudor one is is from a partnership with Kinesi. This in this case, while the Swiss versus Japanese question at large was the apples versus oranges thing, this is kind of an apples versus orange thing. If you can afford the BB, it it is a nicer watch. Hmm. Does that mean I don't want my SPB? No, it's sitting on the desk in front of me, and I absolutely adore it. But I think if it was a four thousand dollar watch, like let's say the SLA 017, that's going to be a much closer comparison, and I would still probably lean towards the the Tudor. I think it's going to probably hold its value better. I, I would feel more inclined to kind of treat it poorly as a day-to-day watch without concern and that sort of thing. So, yeah, between the two, I think the Tudor's a better watch, but also that it's not much of a... There's not a huge contest here in comparing a nearly $4,000 watch with a watch that you could round down to $1,000. Hmm. There's a difference, right? Yeah. So that's the way I would see that. All right. Next question comes to us from Matt, who has a question about uh, a lot of Tudor questions today. Uh, His Black Bay 58. And can he wear it for his wedding? Hey, guys. This is Matt from San Diego. Love the podcast and really enjoyed Depth Charge. I read it on vacation in Palm Springs recently. Question I have for you guys is regarding my current One Watch collection. Shortly after I got engaged, my fiance got me the original black dial Black Bay 58. I wanted this watch since its inception and don't have any intentions on getting another daily wear watch. Two questions I have out of that are, one, is it acceptable to wear it as my wedding watch on an OEM bracelet? If not, is it necessary to get some sort of dress watch for the occasionally dressed up occasion? Maybe a Nomos of some sort? And second, for the honeymoon, we are going to Africa. Safari, hiking, climbing, diving, all that good stuff. Thinking of getting either a NATO or a rubber strap for that adventure. Thoughts between the two? Thanks and look forward to hearing. Well, congrats on the impending nuptials, Matt. Uh, and, you know, I might be the wrong person to ask whether a dive watch is suitable for dress use because I, um, you know, as we mentioned way back in our discomforts episode, I, I've never been one to gravitate towards dress watches. And I, I just feel like, yeah, it's a bit of the, the James Bond cliche of a dive watch with a tuxedo. But I I, I just feel like, especially with, with a classic look like the Black Bay on its bracelet, I think go ahead, do it unless you need an excuse to buy uh, something dressier, but I, I feel like given your love of the of the tutor, um, this will make it all the more meaningful if you have it on your wrist uh, during your wedding, and maybe you uh, maybe you get the back engraved or something with the date or, or whatever it might be. 
Um, in terms of Africa, wow, great, great honeymoon idea. Sounds like you have a lot of adventures mm-hmm. there. I'm, I'm going to vote NATO in this case. I think, you know, NATO's work well in all conditions, uh, sweaty and this and that. I would say bring two, bring three. You know, you can swap the look. You can just tuck uh, a few cheap NATO straps into your uh, into your backpack or whatever and uh, and swap them as they get dirty or sweaty or or whatever. Um, I think I think they would work really well on that trip and be be nice and unobtrusive and comfortable and uh, and and very sturdy. So that's that's For where sure. I land. Any anything to add, James? Yeah, I, I would say as far as the wedding goes, you wear whatever you want, man. It's your wedding, right? Uh, I, obviously, there's a, there's a time and a place for tradition and and dress code and the rest of it, but I don't think that a black bay is going to look out of place in most scenarios. And I think it's important to consider these things as kind of footnotes for sentimentality in your life. I think that getting it engraved is super smart. Um, if it's an issue, uh, pop it off the bracelet, buy yourself a nice leather strap that matches the general tonality of, uh, of your suit. And if you're wearing a tuxedo, uh, I, don't be shy. Just pop it, put it in your pocket. If you're worried about it showing up in a photo and, and then looking at that photo later and being like, nah, I don't really like the <laughs> idea of wearing a dive watch with a tuxedo. Just have it with you. Um, if it feels important to you, that's why you should be doing it on your wedding. That's what weddings are about. It's about what's important to you and, and your partner. And uh, I, I don't think... Um, you know, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't feel too much pressure to think, "Oh, I'd, I'd need a specific dress watch for the day," unless it would make the day better for you. Do what's best for you for that. And then I, you know, hey, it's me. Go with a NATO, um, unless you have a favorite rubber, like one you know that you really like. Uh, go with a NATO. Bring a couple extra spring bars along with those extra straps, just in case. And uh, just have fun. Put some miles on the watch and uh, enjoy your honeymoon. What a what a great trip. Yeah, and a killer watch. Yeah, well done. Uh, next up, we've got uh, time for at least one more here. So we'll do a question from Derek about Rolex production years. Hi, James and Jason. This is Derek from Northern New Jersey. I'm a huge fan, and I just want to say that I appreciate all the work that you guys have been doing. The podcast is always as amazing, and your writing is better than ever. Now, for my question, I've always been curious as to how people track Rolexes and Tudors to their production year based on their serial numbers and maybe to a lesser extent, their reference numbers. So any light that you can shed on that would be great. Thank you so much. Have a good one, guys. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Derek. You know, that's uh, that question is kind of a you know deep nerd kind of collector sort of uh, topic, but I think it's pretty easy, especially when it comes to older Rolexes. I'm not sure where we land on modern Tudors and Rolexes, but at least up to 2015 era, um, you can just look up the serial number from your Rolex on a number of online sources. Uh, the one I've used is from Bob's watches. Um, and they yeah. just have a page on Rolex serial numbers. You plug in your serial number and it gives you the production year. Um, and, and, you know, Rolex with its, with its serial numbers, you know, they had for a number of years, it was sort of alphanumeric and they would have Z and X and et cetera. And, and that usually corresponded with a, a certain date range and, and, uh, it's, it's pretty simple. Um, I think the really old ones, I think it was actually just numeric. I think it was just, you started, started zero and kind of work your way up until yeah, they sequential. ran out of numbers. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of the short answer. I think it's, it's just, uh, wherever they, they attach those codes to certain dates and, and somebody has yeah. gone through the trouble of putting together a way to look it up. What do you say we do uh, one more Jason? Yeah, sure. Yeah. This one's from Dave. Who's got a question about, uh, file storage and backup. Hi guys, Dave here from Elk Grove, California. My question is about storing digital files. Where do you guys store your personal and work digital photos? Is it on a cloud 
or is it on a SSD or HDD? If it is on an external SSD or HDD, what are the pros and cons of using either or? Looking forward to your answers. Keep up the great work, and thank you. James, I'm going to let you take this one entirely. I, I use uh, Dropbox, uh, but I also take SSDs on, on trips, but uh, I'm sure you've got a lot to offer here. Yeah, so if we're talking long-term storage, then you need to consider archival quality of the media, right? So a lot of people used to burn all of their home videos and stuff onto DVDs, and th- some are archival quality, but most aren't. So they can't sit forever. Uh, they age in some ways, the materials. And the same thing goes for some hard drives. So if um, I, I basically have a, a four-level approach <laughs> to storing files. I have what's on my, de- my current desktop. Literally, the desktop is the, what I'm working on actively. And that might be the last three months of photos. And then uh, beyond that, I have an SSD, um, a, a Samsung T5 SSD that houses my like main Lightroom catalog and all of the reference files for that. And that's a terabyte, give or take. Uh, the, the hard drive's a terabyte. I think my, my current working Lightroom is several hundred gigabytes, uh, maybe a little bit more if I included the ones that aren't just watches. I have another library for family. I have another one for cars and it can take up some space. Um, at a certain point when that starts to fill up, I, I usually sort all of the reference files by date and take a whole year's range and put them on a spinning drive, a, a, a standard hard drive. Um, but I like the um, the kind of server class. So this would be Western Digital Red hard drives are, are my preference. Um, and they're, they're a little bit more meant for this level of work. Um, and then finally, when, when I really know that it, it is genuinely a backup, uh, I use an online storage service. Uh, Dropbox is great. Backblaze is great. There's a lot of options out there. And some of them are, are direct syncing. So you could, you could literally have a folder somewhere. I don't want that. Um, what I want is the ability to, to identify things that I do not need immediate access to drag them all into an uploading tool and then when I'm done delete my copy so I have I have you know they're gone essentially and and they're they're in the cloud at that point uh, Dropbox is a fine option it's not your cheapest way you can you know like backblaze and some of these other ones that are meant to be kind of long-standing services uh, for for you know long-term storage of, of files and stuff the um, the 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 play there can be cheaper than what you pay for a terabyte or two of storage on on Dropbox, but of course, Dropbox is very much a trusted solution and very easy to access with a, a great web app and a phone app and the rest of them. Some of these other ones, you're kind of in in a web browser using their tool. And then, of course, there's been stories in the past of some of these services kind of closing down or having data breaches and people losing stuff. So um, always with with hard drives and files you care about, especially ones you care about a lot. One is none, two is one, as always. Uh, so uh, I, I try and keep a lot of stuff on, you know, eight terabyte uh, spinning drives and then just don't I don't really cycle them up that often, but I'll go through them occasionally and tidy up files and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So probably not a perfect solution and maybe even a little bit more, more complicated than what most people are looking for. Uh, I think Dropbox is uh, an, an, a perfectly good way to to do what most people would need to do if you don't have hundreds of gigs of stuff to deal with or, or even more in some people's cases. Uh, then I think Dropbox makes perfect sense. And they, so far, they seem to be a very trustworthy place to store and access your files. And you can use that smart smart sync feature so that you actually don't have to have a copy with Dropbox and a copy on your, on your physical local computer. 
so you can upload it to Dropbox and then turn off Smart Sync, and it, it will. You can. It's no longer on your computer. It's in there on their side, and kind of you can view it as part of your your file list, but it's not taking up space on your drives. So that that would be my recommendation. Good. All right. Well, we plowed through a number of them today. We really uh, made good headway here. Yeah, we got through about fifteen questions. We have three or four left. I, we actually got one or two do, while recording or just before recording. So uh, those ones we'll get to in, in about a month's time. But if you have a question for us, record it into the voice app on your phone and, and then email the question to thegraynado at gmail.com and we will add it to the list and, and we'll get to it. Yeah. Um, well, thanks uh, everybody who submitted for this week. You know, we're getting through the backlog, as James said, and we will have another episode sometime soon. But in the meantime, as always, thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to the show notes via notes.thegraynado.com or check the feed for more details and links. Please follow us on Instagram at Jason Heaton and at J.E. Stacy, and follow the show at The Grey NATO. If you have any questions for us, please do write to thegraynado at gmail.com or submit it in the comments section of the, the notes page and keep sending those voice memos. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and review wherever you find your podcasts. And music throughout is Siesta by Jazzar via the free music archive. And we leave you with this quote from Voltaire, who said... Judge a man by his questions rather than his answers. (laughs) 